Now let us visit Death Valley, created eons ago and changed but little with the passing of time. The monument lies partly in Nevada, but mostly in California, and contains nearly 3,000 square miles. It was created a national monument in 1933 and enlarged to its present size in 1937. Petroglyphs, picture writing on the rocks, are found in parts of the valley, symbols left behind by a people who have vanished into the void of time. Naturalists tell us that during the Ice Age, Death Valley, instead of being filled with ice, contained a large lake around which primitive forms of life gathered. Some of these creatures literally left their footprints in the sands of time, for park rangers constantly uncover age-old links with the past. This is Trickster, The Many Lives of Carlos Castaneda. Chapter 13, Nothing Special. In the final months of his life, Castaneda grew convinced that he was being surveilled by the FBI. He was wrong about the FBI, but he was right about being surveilled. Down the block from his apartment complex on Pandora Avenue in Westwood, two investigators had been running a series of stakeouts. For a year, we sat in a car on the same corner watching his house. Nobody noticed us. Yeah. <laughs> two people sitting in this little Hyundai next, next. on the corner, the same place, sitting there every single day. With binoculars. With and binoculars, and yes. And <laughs> next, a camera. <laughs> next to a fire hydrant. It's so comical when you think of it. We had never done surveillance. <laughs> we watched a lot of movies. Those investigators, Gabby Guzer and Greg Mamishan, were former followers of Castaneda who had previously been booted out from his private classes for minor offenses. For more than a year, Greg and Gabby had been running their own personal investigation. Their self-assigned mission was to uncover the mystery of who really is Carlos Castaneda. We followed Carlos at the seminars, and then we followed Carlos when we weren't at the seminars. <laughs> yeah. I had to check, was he really the person that he described in the books, or was he somebody else? We weren't out to get to Carlos. We weren't out to expose him. None of that. We just wanted to know what was going on. Our venture was basically for us, for us to know. When Greg and Gabby first began attending Castaneda's seminars, they had done so with the hope that he would reveal the meanings of his teachings in a more direct way than he had in his books. But they soon found out that Castaneda in the flesh could be just as cryptic as Castaneda in the ink. I had it a couple of times where he wanted to finish his life with a golden class, and nobody knew what it was supposed to mean. Another enigmatic expression that Castaneda was fond of was going to infinity. Infinity being Castaneda's version of what eternal life would be. At the seminars, he was telling people, I'm going to take you with me to infinity. It was explicit what he said he was going to do. It was abstract as to how it was going to happen. Castaneda would soon begin work on a book that would, however, lay things out in a more detailed way. In it, Don Juan tells him that in order to go to infinity, Castaneda will need to complete one final task. He must create an album of memorable events from his life, a kind of picture album, only one that would be made out of selective memories of special significance. The complete album will express the true embodiment of Castaneda's personality. Unfortunately, without access to Castaneda's album, Greg and Gabby had to go looking elsewhere for rosebuds. 
One day, they came up with a novel idea. There was one personal history archive for Castaneda that no one had ever accessed before. We didn't take all their trash. We just took samples, <laughs> we t- you know. Yeah. Oh, we had huge bags of stuff. And we had a tarp laid out in the living room. We took the trash and emptied it out on that. <laughs> and then everything that was not interesting, we threw in the fire. We would burn trash all night long. <laughs> we were just so ridiculous. The trash bags, it turned out, were bags of stories. Restaurant receipts, fan letters, shredded documents, prescription bottles, phone contacts, torn clothes, broken ceramics. All so many puzzle pieces to Castaneda's hidden private life. For over a year, Greg and Gabby's covert operation on Pandora Avenue had gone off without a hitch until one night. Even though we heard some noises in Carlos's house, we thought, oh, we have done this so many times. Come on, let's get a few bags. So we took a few bags out of his trash can and then walked across the street. And then all of a sudden we heard from behind us a voice. Hey, hey, stop. I turned around my shoulder. It was naive. I thought maybe she might use some of her best tensegrity moves on us. Yeah, and then we accelerated our pace, you know. And I really thought separating to running off in different directions. But I thought, oh, well. And we just walked on as if there was nothing wrong with us taking trash. (laughs) And then she caught up with us. She grabbed the bags out of our head as if they were precious relics. The smelly trash was precious relics, and she took them home. The next morning, I was called. They were panicked. Greg Mission, this is Kylie. Call Clear Green tomorrow, please. Greg, this is Kylie again. I'm afraid that you're going to have to talk to us, and the incident has been reported to the police, so you are going to have to explain. So you'll have to call Clear Green. Greg, this is Kylie again. I really would wish that you would uh, talk to me. I just can't imagine what it, what it is that made you and Gabby They were stunned because this was the first evidence they had that we had been following them. They had been thinking of all the stuff they'd been throwing away. The next day when I went to work in the valley, a detective car was following me. Until I went to work, had to go to work, and uh, then it went away. It's not illegal to take somebody's trash. Once they put the trash out at the street, It's in the public domain. So we knew we hadn't really done anything that was illegal, even though they tried to threaten us. We waited about a month. Yes, till things cooled off. And then we went back. On their first night back, Greg and Gabby were surprised to discover that no trash cans had been placed out front of Castaneda's place. It appeared that a counter-strategy was now being deployed. They took it out in the morning. While effective, the counter-strategy proved to be unsustainable. After a while, they got lazy. The trash cans once again appeared. And then we started taking the trash again. Around the time that Greg and Gabby were cast out from Castaneda's private classes in the mid-90s, a profile piece on Castaneda appeared in Details magazine. It was entitled You Only Live Twice, and it was authored by one of Castaneda's followers, Bruce Wagner. In the article, Castaneda hopscotches across innumerable topics, including existential ones. Reflecting on the meaning or meaninglessness of life, Castaneda references a scene in the sci-fi film Blade Runner. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. 
Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time. Like tears in rain. Castaneda alters the last line of dialogue to be in the form of a question. What if all those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain? That question, Castaneda tells Bruce, is a very serious one. And it's one that Castaneda will wrestle with in his final book. With the publication of the Details magazine article, Castaneda signaled a new degree of accessibility to the public. The article pulled back the curtain on Castaneda's current life to an unprecedented degree, and it revealed intriguing new developments that were of special interest to longtime readers of his work. When the piece by Bruce Wagner appeared in Details magazine, I grabbed it and devoured it. This is Richard Jennings, a founder of the Los Angeles chapter of GLAAD. I'd been on spiritual quest all my life, you know, wondering what else there was because life itself seemed pretty mundane and there had to be something more and, and maybe some magic somewhere. As a young undergraduate student at Stanford in the early 70s, Richard had first read the teachings of Don Juan. Like everybody else who read Cassini's books, I was dying for a teacher as wise and clever as Don Juan. A little over 20 years later, Richard was excited to come across the Details magazine article and learned that a new portal was opening up between the world of Castaneda's books and the world of Castaneda's everyday life. Kind of brought me up to date on what Castaneda was doing, the fact that he'd done some lectures, that he had a new book coming out, The Art of Dreaming, and even more importantly, that there were a couple of women who had been involved with him for years who'd also recently come out with books describing their apprenticeships with Don Juan. This was all new information to me. Searching online, Richard came across the message board of a news group devoted to all things Castaneda. There he found out about a couple of upcoming Tensegrity workshops in the LA area, which he then proceeded to attend. Following the Tensegrity classes, he received in the mail a notice about a three-week workshop to be held at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, that would be led by Castaneda's witches. Flew to New York, rented a car, and drove from New York City up to Rhinebeck. And that trip is still pretty vivid in my mind because, you know, I'd read all the books, all of Castaneda's books, all of the women's books. And I started crying as I was making this drive, feeling like everything in my life was suddenly making sense as to me having been brought to being on the verge of meeting these women who sounded so extraordinary from their books. And then I did meet them and interact with them. My sense of them was that Florinda and Taisha were two extraordinary, strong, powerful women. I knew that there were a lot of reasons to be skeptical of Castaneda, but I was really taken by these women. They were powerful forces on their own, and they reinforced for me that this was something real, that I didn't see how they would be making something up or confirming tales that Castaneda had made up. 
During that weekend, there were a lot of movements taught and the women, Lorenda speaking one night and Taisha speaking another night and answering questions, including a question I had about where gay people fit in in the books that I thought Florinda addressed very well. Taisha's stuff in particular got to me because she has a powerful way of weaving a story and making you want to cry. And in person, that was just amazing. I mean, she would take you on a journey. From the point of that workshop on, I really felt like I'd found my path and wanted to get more involved. An opportunity to get more involved presented itself to Richard three months later when Clear Green put on an end of the summer three week tensegrity workshop in LA. It was advertised that the witches were going to be there, but nothing was mentioned about Castaneda. So it came as a big surprise when about an hour into the session, Castaneda suddenly appeared and we were entranced. He had all kinds of stories and he never knew what he was going to say next, but powerful and commanding too, even in, in just very subtle ways, the way his eyes move. I was impressed and I have a background in the entertainment industry, meeting regularly the biggest celebrities, the biggest actors and not being that impressed. But in Castaneda's case, he was so in the moment. He had this way of making us all more aware of our surroundings. He would react to funny noises or something that might, in his way of using them, reinforcing something that he just said. Besides being alive in the moment, he was clever, he was funny, he could mimic anybody, use accents. It struck me that had he taken a different direction, he could be very successful in Vegas as a comic. He proceeded to return almost every day of the three-week workshop. And during the three-week workshop, we had a lot of interaction with everybody from Castaneda's group. Some members of Castaneda's group were more approachable than others. One of the more distant members was Patricia Parton. Nuri, or as they called her, the Blue Scout. Some people made the mistake of asking her, you know, what was it like being in the inorganics world or what was it like being in this constellation? And she, she would get very offended by that and jump down people's throats. Basically, she intimidated the hell out of people so they quit asking that question. Patricia preferred to open up through her poetry, some of which she would publish in Castaneda's short-lived journal. One poem that she wrote was entitled The Angel's Flight. There are angels who are destined to fly downward into the dark mists. Often they get caught there, and for a time they lose their wings, and they are lost, sometimes for nearly a lifetime. It doesn't really matter. They are still angels. Angels never die. They know that the mist will clear someday, if only for a moment. And they know that they will be reclaimed then, at last by a golden sky. Unlike Patricia Parton, there was one member of Castaneda's group who Richard found to be extremely approachable. Amy Wallace sought me out after the first few sessions when my name was getting mentioned as, as being someone whose notes of the workshop sessions were appearing online. And I think she'd been impressed with my notes. At any rate, we started talking. We were uh, the same age, both born in 55, and we just hit it off right away and had a very easy time talking. Amy was ebullient, very engaging, very articulate, very charming, and she was quick basically to share a lot of things about her personal life. And she shared more and more of her background with Castaneda with me, which went back to first meeting him at parties. The Browns wanted to put us together with Carlos. This is Amy's brother, David Wallachinsky, 
In late December of 1972, Castaneda's literary agent, Ned Brown, who was a friend of Amy and David's novelist father, Irving Wallace, decided to host a dinner party. He and his wife, Myra, invited over the Wallace family so they could meet Castaneda. So they invited over my parents, my sister, my wife, and me. None of us had ever read anything that Carlos had written. We'd read about what he had written. And so the general mood in our family was curiosity. We were just curious. And when we got the invitation, I ran out and quickly bought one of his books and skimmed it. Just <laughs> I, I had some context for the evening. When we got there at the Browns' house, there was Carlos with Anne-Marie, as she was known. And they were extremely nice people. They were so friendly. Carlos was a good storyteller, and my father loved good storytelling. <laughs> and when Carlos heard that I had just published my first book, which was about organic gardening, he became kind of excited and wanted to talk about plants. He liked plants. But I actually spent most of the evening talking to Anne-Marie because we had very similar interests. She was interested in the sociology of daily life, which she called ethnomethodology. And I also was interested in that subject, standing in line, who does the laundry, the things that you just take for granted in your life. And she was also interested in the spiritual aspects of karate. She'd been reading about the origins and how there was another aspect of it. And I got the impression that Emery, she wasn't used to talking to somebody that long. When they got together, everybody wanted to talk with Carlos when she was in the background. So this was you know, somewhat different for her. And I liked her. I thought she was a very nice person and interested in things that were different and, and interesting to me. So that was our first contact. David wasn't the only one who had a good time that night. Amy had been quite taken by Castaneda. She found him to be warm, good-natured, and charming. A few days after the party, she received in the mail a surprise gift from Castaneda. It was a copy of his second book, A Separate Reality, and it was inscribed with best wishes and an accompanying quote from Don Juan, which read, The way to freedom is sometimes a whisper in the ear. Over the ensuing years, Castaneda would develop relationships with all the Wallace family members, unexpectedly popping in and out of their lives. My wife and I, we enjoyed Carlos. We would just go to dinner together and go to a movie. There was a human side to him back then. Not long ago, David went back and looked through his old diaries. He found one entry that, in retrospect, stood out as an important transition point in his relationship with Castaneda. I had this note, March 1984. Myra Brown said to my mother, I have a message from Carlos to give to David and Flora, my wife. And that is that he wanted to give his final goodbye because he was giving up the world to go south and become the next Don Juan. When he changed and wanted to become the guru, continuing contact with me was not going to work because the relationship that I had with him was that he was a prankster, that he was teasing people, he got a kick out of the whole thing, and we never spoke of spiritual values or all the things that he was saying in his books. As David's relationship with Castaneda cooled off, Amy's grew more and more intense, especially after the death of her father in 1990, an event which left Amy emotionally shattered. As a father and daughter, they really loved each other. He was just supportive of her, kind to her, do anything to help her. From the time she was a little girl, Amy's father loved to sing to her the old Broadway tune, 
once in love with Amy. He would sing it to her, and then she's a cute little girl, she's very smart. And so other people would sing it to her, too. She heard it her whole life. (laughs) In the wake of Irving's passing, Amy's relationship with Castaneda would evolve from a friendship into an apprenticeship. And as he did with all his other apprentices, Castaneda instructed Amy she would need to erase her personal history. Carlos told my sister to destroy all photographs of herself. And then that wasn't even enough. She had to sneak into the family home when nobody was there, track down all the photographs in the house and tear them all up and destroy them. When Amy became fully enmeshed, Castaneda's relationship with David came to an end. Once he got my sister involved, he cut off relations with me, my wife. He didn't want to talk to us again. Following the end-of-summer, three-week Tensegrity workshop, Richard Jennings was one of about 40 people who were invited to attend exclusive Sunday sessions with Castaneda. This was a group that you couldn't easily join. You essentially had to be sought out or you had to be brought in. And it was, for the most part, very highly intelligent, very professional people, writers, doctors, lawyers, and the like. But unlike some of the other invitees, Richard still retained a degree of skepticism. I was skeptical of Castaneda. I did read books like Richard DeMille that work hard to debunk him and show that he stole from other sources or that you know he couldn't have been places that he said he was in the books. I went out and tracked down the Time Magazine article from 73 when he was on the cover that pointed out that he wasn't really raised in Brazil, like he said, but you know in Peru. And he also told us about being raised in Argentina at times. And I knew that wasn't really true. But he had a way of telling the story that made it super vivid. I mean, he would describe the scene in a bar and these people and what his uncle said and what was on his breath. And it made it more real than real. And it was a basic part of the philosophy, something that Don Juan had supposedly told him, that you have to suspend your disbelief, set aside your doubts, you know, when your Nawal is teaching you something. So I tried to do that. While some of Castaneda's stories may have strained believability, his techniques and exercises seem to yield benefits, notable changes in perception. Uh, Up until then, I tried meditation and silence retreats and all kinds of practices, trying to turn off the monkey mind, the thinking about everything, this problem and that problem and what's next. But over a period of a number of months while working with Castaneda, working with the material, I found that I was able to shut off the internal dialogue and I had had no luck with that all my life. And that was really exciting for me. I started feeling like I finally had a teacher who's giving us techniques that seemed to be having a positive impact. I was feeling fantastic. And I found that when I went to entertainment industry meetings, screenings of films, things like that, that it just felt like the people around me were comparatively dead. They didn't know what we in the group around Castaneda were learning as far as seeing energy and what was really important in life. A new dividing line started running across Richard's social world. On one side were those who were lucky enough or special enough to be in Castaneda's group. On the other side were all those who weren't. I felt more and more separated from the average person who wasn't part of this particular group. I began to feel increasingly like like Castaneda and the witches were my family. Richard's other family, Castaneda had warned him, posed a serious threat. Family members, he said, 
could permanently fix your identity. He would regularly harangue us about how family members and loved ones and partners would hold us back from developing the energy that we needed and being able to travel with freedom because family members don't like you to change in any way. They want the person that they know and, and they're comfortable with. So to see us changing in some ways would be threatening. I came from a very close-knit family, two parents who married in their teens and just been together forever, and two sisters, an older and a younger, and we were very close. We did a lot of family things together. I was with my partner, Jerome, and we'd been together nearly seven years at that point, and we typically hosted a lot of family events at our home. But with this constant, virtually every session, emphasis by my teacher on the need to separate, especially from parents, but generally from family members and not have them so involved in your life as you're making all these changes. I gradually started separating, not visiting them as often, not trying to have family events at our house. Richard's deepening involvement with Castaneda was also taking an emotional toll on his relationship with Jerome. Jerome and I had been having more and more difficulties in our relationship. Castaneda's peculiar dietary prescriptions, like no onions, and instructions about furniture placement, like where Richard should orient his bed, were raising red flags for Jerome. He was pretty sure I was in a cult. Richard's family members were beginning to fear the same thing. So there was a family gathering in a restaurant, and we'd had the meal, and then it turned into an intervention. His family members were talking about their concerns about what I was involved in. My sister Janice did most of the talking, and her focus was trying to get me to reconnect with my relationship with Jerome. And my older sister Judy, she said that she was afraid and, and concerned for me. And she and others, including Janice, told me that my personality was changing so much that they didn't recognize me. I was surprised and, and shocked, and so I didn't accept it very well. I was visibly angry and told they basically they didn't know what they were talking about and that I was happier than I'd been in my life. I had finally found my path. That whole experience basically reinforced for me what Cassidy was telling us, that family members aren't going to want to see you change and they're going to try and hold you back. So after that, I really, really distanced myself and didn't talk to them as much. Richard struggled to understand how his family failed to realize that everything in his life had become enhanced with Castaneda as his teacher. At that point, I was in the best shape of my life, doing tensegrity every day. I looked good. I felt good. And then, you know, even more so because of Castaneda basically having the answers for everything, this path was an opportunity to basically have eternal life, continue to travel in infinity in other realms forever. I certainly didn't want to go back to anything else at that point. It seemed like Castaneda was the ticket to real magic and an eternal life. So that wasn't something I was about to give up. By the end of 1995, Richard's decision to further his ties with Castaneda would ultimately lead to the breakup of his relationship with Jerome. In the following months, though, a disturbing revelation would severely test Richard's newly forged commitment. When Amy Wallace confided in me that she had been Castaneda's lover and that she wasn't the only one, all the other women in Castaneda's group had a sexual relationship with him. This was very contrary to what they were saying at workshops and interviews where they claimed that there was no sexual relationship and that, that sorcerers were celibate. And yet I had suspected from seeing the way 
Castaneda interacted so intimately in the Sunday group sessions with the various women like Kylie, that just from my awareness of, of human nature, it seemed like they were too close and too physically comfortable with each other not to have slept with each other at some point. The way Amy shared with me that she understood it and that Castaneda had told the women that he was having sex with that they should understand it is that when the Noel has sex with you, it's an energetic transmission. It's a way of speeding the process of you reaching the awareness levels and the energy levels needed to travel in other worlds. And it's not about sex like in society and it's not that he loves you and it's not that you're going to be girlfriend and boyfriend and all of that. I remember having like a weekend to kind of digest this and make a decision whether I was going to continue with the group because obviously the other way of me processing this information was to see Cassini just like every other guru takes advantage of his position of authority and power with his followers and, and has sex with them or extorts other favors from them. And how was Castaneda no different and, and that this really was a cult like Jerome was convinced that it was. But at that point, it was my teacher and I had suspended disbelief. I did feel like there were changes happening in my perception that he had predicted and that he was confirming as a result of the practices we were doing. I knew these women, you know, the witches who seemed so powerful, who he seemed intimidated of himself. And I ultimately decided that there must be something to his explanation. And I decided to continue with the group. Not unlike Richard, Amy's relationship with Castaneda would also cause a distance to develop between her and her old friends and family, including her brother. She kept me informed that she and Carlos were lovers, but the rest of it she didn't talk about. As a lover of Castaneda, Amy would occasionally be summoned over to his place on Pandora for a tryst. One time after they had made love, Castaneda took Amy into the living room and put on a movie. It was a 1940s gangster film. And on the screen, Amy was surprised to see an actress who looked uncannily like Patricia Parton. Castaneda asked her what she thought. And when she replied that the actress looked like Patricia Parton, he snapped back, no, 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 she doesn't look like my daughter. She is her. This episode was one in a series of increasingly puzzling behaviors from Castaneda. As 1977 began, his appearances in Sunday sessions started becoming more intermittent. He would appear at one session and then not appear for several in a row. Greg and Gabby. Several times during the week, we were watching the dance studio where they were having those classes. And we noticed that only the witches and Kylie came. When he stopped showing up at the meeting, we knew something was up. Richard Jennings. As 97 wore on, we weren't really seeing him at all. Like Sunday sessions became fewer and far between. The cause of Castaneda's absences was a mystery to all, except for those in his inner circle. We have a video of them leaving the dance home, of them coming down the stairs and going out the front door and looking at the look on Kylie's face. I knew something was wrong. Her face was ashen. She was crushed. She was totally crushed. There was fear in her eyes. It was so clear. Carlos never attended any of the classes after that. After Castaneda quit meeting with us, there were still the workshops going on that Amy and I were both involved with. And we would chat and periodically get together for breakfast or something. And she let me know that he was getting increasingly weak and getting really frail and, and thin and, you know, just looked really bad. He didn't look like his robust self that we'd known at all. Medication bottles began appearing regularly in Castaneda's trash. 
we assumed Carlos was seriously ill. They were trying all sorts of stuff. They tried everything. But based on Castaneda's physical appearance, nothing seemed to be working. One day, while surveilling Castaneda's complex, Greg and Gabby were stunned to see the once vibrant Castaneda now needing help to get in and out of a car. It made me sad to see Carlos decline. It got more serious for us. It was like, what is going to happen to this guy? All the things he said and his grandiose ideas. In Castaneda's trash, Greg and Gabby began discovering the makings of a curious plan by those in his inner circle. They were boat shopping. Yeah. They were checking auctions, boat auctions. And then there were lots of books they purchased in regards to living on a boat. Within the community, Castaneda's followers, rumors began spreading that the witches were preparing to leave, and invitations to join them were indirectly being floated to a selected few. Meanwhile, Castaneda's condition was getting worse and worse. Holed up in his house, he was almost entirely socially cut off, spending almost all his time watching old war movies. Richard Jennings. I knew from Amy that he wasn't seeing many members of his own group anymore. The only people who were really around him all the time were Taisha and Florinda and Kylie and Amalia. Those were the four people who were always around him. And the other people like Amy, they saw Carlos rarely. But even as his social world was rapidly shrinking, Castaneda attempted to break through it and reconnect with someone from his past. He said he was feeling like he was going to die soon. When Castaneda called Gloria Garvin, it had been over 17 years since she had last seen him at the American Anthropological Association conference. I said, oh, come up. I'd be happy to. We used to always meet at ships, ships in Westwood. Even in the middle of the night, ships was open all night. And sometimes I'd meet him there at midnight. But no, he didn't want that. He said he didn't want me to see him in the condition he was in. But he wanted me to forgive him. I said, but Carlos, I'm not your judge. He said, but I'm sorry if I hurt you. I said, well, I accept your apologies, but you you just, we both had a lot of life since the time we were together. And, and you know, I'll, I'll always love you. And he said he would always love me, too. And he wanted me to think of him sweetly. Gloria Garvin was not the only person from his past that he had had a falling out with that he now wished to specially acknowledge before it was too late. Castaneda biographer Roberto Marshall. Garfinkel is one of the very few people to whom Castaneda would revere throughout his life, from when they met up until the publication of his last book, which he dedicates to Garfinkel. That last book that Castaneda would dedicate to Professor Garfinkel would be called The Active Side of Infinity. In it, Don Juan stresses the need for Castaneda to recapitulate his life in order to complete his book of memorable events and be able to reach infinity. Don Juan tells him that recapitulation stirs up all the garbage of our lives and brings it to the surface, so it can be purged. As the spring of 1998 commenced, Greg and Gabby began noticing a few odd developments. Major outdoor renovations were being performed on Castaneda's complex, 
His bushes were being removed from the driveway. The stucco of his building was being repainted. And in the yard, a brick floor and gazebo were being installed. In early April, they discovered in Castaneda's trash a curious note with an address to a business, Wilshire Coin Exchange. The note included the rate of Maple Leaf, American Eagle, and Krugerrand gold coins. They also noticed that two new Ford sedans were now being parked outside of Castaneda's place. In nightly phone calls with Amy, Richard was learning about Castaneda's precipitous decline and the devastating effect it was having on his inner circle. We were both really worried about Castaneda, and there was increasing despair going on among the Clear Green members, and Taisha had come over to Amy's to burn a bunch of papers and was sobbing and, and saying, you know, this isn't how it's supposed to happen. And then one night, Richard received the call from Amy he had long been dreading. She told me that he died, that she had had that confirmed. Amy also told Richard something else. Florinda and Taisha and some of the others closest to him had left town. I tried calling the numbers I had for Florinda and others, and all of them were disconnected. Confusion and sadness crashed down on Richard. My teacher, my family were gone. I was thinking about how can I go on. I knew members of his group were feeling the same way. On the day Castaneda had died, Greg and Gabby had been in the middle of a week-long vacation. When they returned to Pandora Avenue, they found a number of things noticeably different. The new cars were missing, as well as something else. The van wasn't there anymore. There was right away a tip-off. We went inside the yard and looked at the house through the windows. Inside, it was empty. There was no furniture in there anymore. The reality of it was sinking in. Now Carlos is gone. Carlos was gone, but the question of how he left now loomed large in Greg and Gabby's minds. There was still a possibility that he might have had a non-ordinary death, even though he was sick. So that was in the back of my mind. I wanted first-person experience to know that this was true. This was really for myself. I went downtown and I got a a copy of Carlos' death certificate. And then I went from there and I saw that was the mortuary. So I went to the mortuary in Culver City and I went in there. There was a black guy there and I said, I want to know if Carlos Castaneda was cremated here. And he didn't say a word. He just turned away and left. And then this black lady came out. She was very nice and she was the owner of the mortuary. And she was very friendly, and I told her the story. I said that a lot of Carlos's believers believe that he didn't die and that he died a non-ordinary death. And she said, I can assure you that he was cremated at our mortuary. And she hugged me. It was really touching. She was a very, very nice lady. At that time, I was the only one that knew he was cremated. Nobody else knew besides the people on the inside. They told everybody else that Carlos went into infinity like his books. They died a magical death. Five days after Castaneda's death on April 27, 1998, Green went ahead with a planned weekend workshop in Santa Monica. Carol was there, but Florinda and Taisha and Kylie weren't. You know, the ones who were there seemed very somber, talking about changes. Nobody was saying that Florinda and Taisha and others had left town, but they weren't available or they were doing something. It just seemed like everybody was kind of acting like things hadn't really happened that had and, and weren't being honest with people. And so that made it all the worse for me. 
by then, I think I'd shared with one or two others of the Sunday group what I knew, you know, that the phone numbers I had were disconnected, that besides Cassandra being dead, that some of the women were gone. And word got around that following week, I get a call from Carol Tiggs, basically trying to find out what I knew. And I was cagey with her and she was cagey with me, but I did let her know that I'd called the numbers I had and they were all disconnected. And so at that point, she told me that they had left, that they were traveling, that she was originally supposed to go with them, but a non-decision decision that kept her here in LA. And I felt like she was bullshitting me. The women had killed themselves. I definitely was aware that suicide was something that had been on, on their minds. I knew from Amy that Talia Bay, president of Clear Green, had bought a gun. Suicide hadn't just been on their minds. It was something that they had openly discussed. Castaneda told us in night sessions, Kylie and Talia had been looking into abandoned mines that they could die in if they weren't able to make the leap. Suicide was also something that Castaneda had clandestinely woven into his final book. In one passage, he would write, My mind focused on a thought, on a feeling of anguish. I knew then that I had made a pact with some people to die with them, and I couldn't remember who they were. I felt, without a shadow of a doubt, that it was wrong that I should die alone. As the confusion from unanswered questions continued to swell among Castaneda's followers, Richard and Amy decided to pursue their own investigation. We were trying to process it together and figure out what had happened, and we were both really concerned about the women who had vanished and trying to figure out that mystery. One source of information of somewhat questionable reliability was Carol Tiggs. Carol shared with Amy a few details about what had happened to Patricia Parton. According to what Amy was told by Carol, Nuri didn't leave with the other four women, but she was really distraught. She was like making a mess at her apartment. Then she decided to follow them. But the other four women did go together and had more of a plan. While the exact nature of that plan remained unclear, Richard did have a good idea about where they might have gone. I was aware that they'd gone out to Death Valley. There were a couple indications of that, and I wanted to follow them. I wanted to go out to Death Valley and maybe see if I could find an obvious place that people could go into where their bodies wouldn't found, like a narrow crevice or narrow canyon or something. I was also thinking at the same time that I might go to the desert and jump off a cliff. That was really what was going through my mind. But just as he was about to begin his trip to Death Valley, something unexpected happened. But my car air conditioning was broken. And we're talking May and Death Valley now. And here I can imagine maybe jumping off a cliff, but I didn't want to be heading out to the desert without air conditioning. It took Richard two weeks to get the air conditioning in his car fixed. And then he started it off on his trip to Death Valley. It was incredibly emotional drive out east of LA through Pasadena and then on the 10 and out to Death Valley. I mean, I was all by myself and it was like a 36 hour journey or something. And I was reliving so much and hearing their voices. I was overwhelmed emotionally and otherwise as I was passing communities and places that they would have passed. I felt that I was kind of feeling what they'd been feeling. And then I did get to Death Valley, which is, you know, quite spread out and went to find a ranger and ask questions and got maps and guidebooks, but basically concluded that there wasn't an obvious place that they might have gone to in Death Valley where their bodies wouldn't have been found. 
With the mystery of the women's disappearance proving to be impenetrable, Richard began considering his options. Toward the end of the day, I did get to Cliff Ann, stood there for a long time looking out at the desert, and then I came close to jumping. I was thinking there really wasn't anything more that I wanted to do with my life. This kind of was my path, and if there was a chance that might be a way of joining them, that might be a good idea. But I think there was curiosity still. I was trying to at least come to a conclusion for myself as to what happened to the women. And I I guess I thought I could still jump later, but I wasn't compelled to in that moment. Richard had survived one trial, but many more would follow. Fortunately, he could take solace in the fact that he was not alone on his journey. Amy was with him. Several months, on pretty much a daily basis, we were on the phone constantly. We were both really distraught at first, not knowing quite what to do with ourselves because Castaneda and the group random had, had become our lives. So processing that, but also processing all the new information and what the different stories Carol was telling the remaining group at Clear Green as to what happened and that Castaneda had burned from within there in the compound and other stories. And yeah, we were, we were the only two who had a lot of information from different sources or from interacting with basically pretty much everybody in the inner circle and me from my various searches. In his search for answers, Richard would need to exit from the information bubble of Castaneda's group. I started going to the courthouse and other places checking on records because I was curious about these people, both the ones who were missing and others who were part of Castaneda's group. I think Amy had told me something about marriages, that she was supposed to marry Castaneda and that she'd heard that members of his party had gotten married. So I did check out the marriage registry for Clark County, Nevada, where Vegas is, and found that indeed Castaneda had married several of the women in his group. Then I was checking for name changes, trying to find out who these people really were and what Castaneda was telling us about the women was making no sense at all. And they weren't the people that he said they were. And, you know, realizing who Nuri really was as opposed to this incredibly gifted, powerful being that we'd been told she was, that she was a high school dropout and he'd met her as a waitress. I was getting physically sick and not knowing what to do with this information. Clear Green was still trying to keep in touch with me, asking me for help on things, and they were having occasional night sessions that they would invite me to. But I was feeling very alienated from them, and I decided my only hope for recovering was to make public what I'd known, that keeping it to myself or just to me and Amy was killing me somehow. Richard and Amy both began thinking about the prospect of writing books. Richard envisioned writing a biography of Castaneda, and Amy a personal memoir of her relationship with Castaneda. In the end, Richard would decide not to go through with the biography, but he would publish his research in another way. He would archive it on a website called Sustained Action. Amy, however, would go forward with her book, David Walachinsky. She would tell me her progress on the book, trying to remember things. Most of what she was writing about was parts of her life that I had nothing to do with. Carlos had cut off from us, and she had to a certain extent. When Amy began filling in for her brother, parts of her life that she had spent with Castaneda, David was shocked by what he heard. When I learned really what it was like and the way he treated her and others, I couldn't even relate to that as being the Carlos I knew. When I think of Carlos, I have two separate Carloses. One was the Carlos that I knew, and the other is the Carlos that I learned about. It's almost difficult for me to to come to grips with that that's the same Carlos. (laughs) 
because all of my exposure to Carlos in person was funny storyteller, very friendly, just a nice guy. And all this other stuff, it's just like a different person. It's like some worm got into his brain and gave him a tumor, and he became something different than the Carlos I knew. For Amy, going back and revisiting the darker moments of her life with Castaneda would ultimately prove to be a disruptive experience, one that would have lasting consequences. Richard Jennings. I think it was hard for her to get past what she opened up uh, in writing the book. The book really took a, an emotional toll on her, and she did start doing opiates, and I could tell, and I was really concerned about her. Amy's battles with addiction were part of a lifelong struggle, one she would ultimately succumb to. David Walachinsky. As it turned out, she had died of an overdose of fentanyl. Boom, it hits home, my own sister. You would have thought with writing that book that she had a chance to purge herself, but it didn't happen. She was unable to purge something in her personality. During her time with Castaneda, Amy became close with Tony Karam. On a number of occasions, she turned to him for advice. Tony Karam. We were good friends. I think if she had lived closer to me, I would have been able to help her. She could have understood what uh, elements of uh, Carlos's life and personality were simply neurotic expressions of his ego. And she could have also not have had to part with the totality of that relationship in her life. This is very destructive to do because then you have to, in a way, acknowledge the fact that most of your life was a mistake or was an error or was a type of sin or you were taking complete advantage of. And that is very psychologically disruptive. But there's that other path in which you can say, well, what is all of this taught me? What is all of this given me as a gift? I can learn from all of this. It's not simply negativity. And this can strengthen and make me a, a better person. And that's what we, in the few times that we had the opportunity to talk and speak to each other, what we shared. And she had those moments of lucidity and understanding where she could take the good and also let go of the bad. On September 29th, 2013, a memorial service was held for Amy Wallace. I want to thank you for coming here to celebrate the life of Amy Wallace, my sister. In the back of the memorial gathering, David had set up a display of photographs he had taken from Amy's photo albums. As a lot of you know, she was involved for many years with Carlos Castaneda. And so uh, he ordered Amy to not have her photograph taken. But he went even beyond that. And he ordered her to destroy all photos of her from the family collection. So one day uh, when nobody was home, Amy went to the family house and she gathered up boxes of photos and destroyed them. But, but, rebel that she was, as always, she hid a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, particularly from the early years. And so the last gift she gave me, and uh, we had no idea it would be the last one, the last gift she gave me was a scrapbook of photographs from our early years with friends, our parents with uh, Flora, all these, these old, old pictures. And it was really a wonderful gift. One of the people in attendance at Amy's service was Greg Mamishan. In the final weeks of Castaneda's life, Greg and Gabby went on one of their last trash collections. 
After successfully securing the goods, they went back to their place and began sifting through Castaneda's trash bags. They discovered a few pieces of what appeared to be a torn up old black and white photograph. It was a photograph that had traveled the Pacific, gone through customs at the port of San Francisco. In a series of Los Angeles apartments, it had been tucked away in a room with only a bare mattress on the floor before ending up finally in an apartment on Pandora Avenue. And while the owner of the photograph urged everyone around him to destroy their own family photographs, he can never find it within him, destroyed this photograph. Each piece on its own was just a blurry, formless smudge of gray or black. But as more pieces were found and then brought together, a picture began to take shape. The old photograph was of a softly smiling little boy, little Cesar Arana, his eyes alight to all things shining brightly. I've never had to go back and review an episode of my life and then try to re-experience it. It really challenges one's memory. This is Kevin Barth, who on that full moon night back in 2003, discovered Patricia Parton's bones. Kevin is now making his way across the sand dunes back to the site of his discovery. This place, it's an always shifting, evolving landscape because it's still in a kind of a state of working itself out. It's kind of like a print that's constantly changing in terms of the detail. Certain things emerge, certain things disappear in your view of it. And so the perspective is always changing. When Kevin left Death Valley after finding the bones, the only thing that he knew was that he had found some bones. He didn't know their story, the story of who they belonged to or what their life had been like. He didn't know how their life had intersected with the life of one of his favorite authors, a master storyteller whose books about life and death and the golden mystery which fastens the two would inspire Kevin to make his own trips out to the desert. When Kevin left Death Valley in 2003, the bones were just bones, a blank screen to his mind's eye, nothing special. But now, they were something different. I think about her. I feel like I want to connect with her. So when I walk around, I'm just open to what is left of her, however that manifests itself. And it may just be an image I have. I hope that in whatever confusion preceded it, that she took some solace about being here. It's a peaceful place. Take a look. Rolling sand dunes, full moon over backside of the Panamints. It almost looks like the sun's setting over there, but it's the moon rising. And then on the western horizon, there's still a faint outline of pink along the plateau. And you can still see a stream of light. The sky is filling with stars right now. Wow. 